Well, welcome to another episode of the Grazy Cheek Podcast. I'm your host, Big Tom Perkins, along with Dr. Cameron Miley. I think today we're going to continue our discussion on the barber pole worm. And uh, maybe we'll concentrate a little more on how you can combat the barber pole worm. I know we've talked a little bit about the grazing as a way to, rotational grazing as a way to kind of stop that. Um, we, t- we tend to move sheep every day with the idea that uh, we're just not grazing down into that parasite zone. We just want those sheep mostly to be grazing the tops of those plants and not getting down into that Oh, that bottom four inches where most of those parasite larvae are hiding out. Yeah, and the difficult thing and kind of what we talk about in these FAMACHA trainings is, you know, does anybody have enough control over their sheep to to kind of force them to not or ask them politely to not graze below that four to six inch threshold and, you know, kind of offer the, the uh, ticket there that, you know, if anybody knows how to do, to do that, you know, let me know and um, we can both quit our jobs and, and yeah. capitalize on that opportunity. Um, but yes, yeah, so the goal is, you know, especially with your your kind of high capacity grazing or or um, offering more tonnage than what you know they can can consume in a short period of time is to ensure that the percentage or the greater percentage of what they're consuming is above that six inch that four to six inch mark yeah um, and it's been working for you yeah it's uh yeah we definitely have sheep that uh boy if you graze them in short grass you would have problems they would definitely become parasitized um but grazing those those taller forages makes a huge difference in that yeah and there's certainly some other alternatives you know i think just grazing from a uh, forage quality standpoint, rotational grazing makes a lot of sense and mm-hmm. and certainly for some other aspects and attributes as well. But, you know, when we're thinking about, we kind of talked about uh, anthelmintic resistance and the issue that that's kind of created uh, or forced our hand in, in developing some other maybe improved practices or, or strategies. Um, you know, do you have any experience with some other alternatives to uh, outside of rotational grazing well in our pastures we have an awful lot of the plants that are high in the in the tannins um i don't know that there's a whole lot of research <clears throat> you know we have a lot of uh birch foot tree foil and there's oh i don't know that I've, I've heard cup plant and a bunch of other different plants that they're growing out there they're high in that tannin um i know in england uh i read an article one time where they'll take an area that is enough to graze sheep for one day and they plant nothing in there except for plants that are high in that tannin and um and they'll bring those sheep in there every 30 days and basically that's their deworming program (laughs) is to graze them into that um yeah and so condensed tannin certainly would be one of those alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you've probably got some some decent levels of bird's foot trefoil. Um, I'm probably not the the biggest 
fan of bird's foot trefoil, and that just comes from um, not personal reasons for establishment, but uh, when you're when you're looking at establishing that forage, it is very difficult. Um, now, your bird's foot trefoil has been around for decades. Um, it seems like it. Yeah, it, it's uh, we yeah. can't for whatever reason in this valley, we just can't grow off alpha. Um, it just it just gets demolished. And I think, um, you know, back in the day when I was a kid, somebody had suggested uh, putting birch foot trefoil in the mix. And it just especially since we've been uh, rotationally grazing, you know, for the last eight years, it's it it's been allowed to go to the seed. And so it's continuously receiving itself. And so at times you look out there, yeah. it's just everywhere. It's, it's kind of amazing because yeah. I hear all these people that have a terrible time trying to get it established. And I'm like, I don't know what we did, but it just grows down here. So it's kind of one of those things where that's a strength. And so you just go with it kind of a thing. Yeah. And we were, you know, so that's my my biggest issue with that is is establishment. And then mm-hmm. kind of second secondary to that is cost. You know, the cost for a pound of bird's foot trefoil is is exorbitant. And, you know, I was discussing with a uh, a seed dealer there in, in Pennsylvania talking about um, just seed availability. And he, it was his projection that uh, he did not think we'd be able to get it in the U.S. in five years. Um, wow. Because, you know, we were at a, at a small ruminant meeting, a lot of people asking about some contents condensed tannin varieties mm. uh and and so bird's foot trefoil comes up um and so he had just said i would not bank if you're looking if you have the money and the luck to establish it now um go ahead and do it because you won't have access to it in the future which was news to me um i do know again here in pennsylvania and certainly in the southeast we talk a lot about uh cerecia lespedeza would be yeah. another a uh, prime example of, of one that we're integrating into some systems to uh, provide that condensed tannin to those animals. Uh, I was kind of surprised. There's only. A- I was kind of surprised. I had read uh, in that article there was an awful lot of plants that I had no idea that they were uh, high in condensed tannins, and they and of course right. and now I can't think of, of any of them, but there there was an awful were. lot. And uh, a lot of those plants were thought of as weeds as well, but you know, sheep are eating them; they're not weeds. Um, I just thought that was kind of a a cool idea to do, and I kind of always thought in the back of my mind, well, maybe one day that's what I'll do. I'll t- I'll take an acre of ground and I'll just plant that into nothing but uh, plants that are high in condensed tannins and see if that helps at all. I you know I don't know whether it it really works. I, I don't know how much research there has been on. I've not seen a lot by any stretch of imagination. I know the other one that they talk about a good bit is mixed species grazing. And that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, I understand the theory that the barber pole worm can't live inside like a cow. And so if the cow consumes the L3 larvae, it's going to die in the cow because it would be a dead end host. But if you're grazing the way you're supposed to be grazing or, or in rotational grazing, 
that cow never eats down into that parasite zone. And so it's, it shouldn't be consuming those parasites anyhow. Right. Yeah. And that's something too, you know, had a, had a, uh, actually a veterinarian talk to me. He's like, well, just tell these guys to, to put a donkey out with them because it's a, a dead end host and that'll help with the, with the parasite population. Um, and you know, we have a donkey and I don't know that I've ever seen him go out and lick up every parasite on the, on the pasture. And that's, that's kind of what, uh, my thought is, is, um, especially grazing together, those cattle are not operating as vacuums in those pastures. I do think there's some value to integrate them into a system where we're extending our rest period yeah. um, for our grazing and, and or not necessarily grazing. We're extending our rest period for that single species, but maybe we can get in on that forage a little bit earlier when our, um, our forage quality is improved. So maybe I graze my sheep through uh, this paddock and then in 60 days, as opposed to going back with my sheep when that forage is, has grown, we're in a kind of a premium or prime uh, category of forage quality. Uh, I could run through with maybe some replacement heifers or some cows that are in lactation. Um, and then we wait another 60 days for regrowth and all and graze it with my sheep again. And all of a sudden, my rest period, technically on the parasite side of things, is 120 days. Yep. And I have eliminated the, um, you know, maybe my weed species going to seed or um, a lot of that plant material to be lignified by the time I get back to it at yep. 120 days. Um, so I certainly understand it from and, and think it's a tool from that aspect. Yeah. Um, but the thought that I'm going to put cows out there and all of a sudden I don't deal with barber pole worm. Um, yeah, that's not necessarily the camp that that I sit in. Yeah, and I, I've seen too quite a few systems where they are basically continuously grazing or they've got, you know, three or four pastures and they're just grazing them down to the dirt and then moving on. Um, I often wonder how much of the parasites the cattle um, are, are actually consuming versus the sheep. But I also wonder if those larvae are hatching out and then just drying out because there's just not the moisture there or the, or the cover to keep the sunlight off them. Right. So they're dying to UV exposure. And that's something, you know, what you just brought up, um, certainly another alternative to, to kind of help with our just parasite population out on, on our pasture area, um, making a cutting of hay. You know, that UV exposure for, um, I want to say five days, kills up to 50% of the uh, population out in the environment. Okay. Um, which is, is certainly doable after you make that cutting of hay. Uh, something that that will kind of rotate through pastures on um, where we're going to make some hay and and keep that forage height uh, maybe a little bit lower or, or kind of set us up for a later summer grazing. Um, 
by taking that early kind of spring flush of growth off um, and hopefully breaking up some of that parasite cycle. So, for example, we graze some sheep through a section uh, early spring here. And then that regrowth is what we cut as, I guess, technically would be a second cutting. Um, but the hope is for that uh, larvae to desiccate or dry out in the environment. And then um, for it to not be as, as big of an issue later on when we graze it. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. The, uh, I think one of the other things that we do is we are constantly bringing in rams to breed that have... Uh, EBVs of, uh, of that are high in parasite resistance so that that next lamb crop is more parasite resistant than the than the ewes they came out of. Yeah and that's something certainly on the genetic selection side of things and I think we're going to have an episode here in a couple weeks we'll take a break from the barber pole worm um, but here in a couple weeks we'll have some other some guest speakers on here talking about um, just in-depth discussion on fecal egg count EBVs and selecting for parasite resistance. And not only that, uh, but maybe the immune function of what we're selecting for through that numeric value. Um, because it, that is, I think, one of the more sustainable approaches. Uh, I know we talked last episode on just uh, you know, when I started out with the ewes that I have, didn't know anything on their background, um, but knew that uh, once you start to investigate, knew that I wanted to to invest in that EBV specifically, uh, just to afford a, a number of opportunities in what we wanted to do uh, there with those sheep on, on some of that acreage. But um, yeah, certainly a, a more sustainable approach than just our, our regular deworming protocols. Yeah, and that's that's definitely more of a long-term plan. Um, it's definitely not something that, you know, I've got an issue right now. Uh, you can't just go out and buy a ram, stick a ram in with you, and everybody's going to be fine. <laughs> you, know, you have to, you definitely need to be thinking ahead on that. Um, so what, so I guess with your wormers, um, there's a lot of talk on, uh, that, what is that? Wormx.org or is it dot info? It's dot info. And that's the small ruminant consortium yeah. uh, page. And certainly, you know, if you're listening to this and you know, you've dealt with, uh, you know, parasite issues, whether it's barber pole or, or other issues, a lot of just <clears throat> research and resource for, uh, sheep and goat producers on that site, some really cool data, um, some really cool, cool treatment protocols and kind of what what people are using across the country. Um, something that I kind of plug and, and promote to a lot of producers that, that don't know it exists. Uh, and it's certainly helpful. One of the things, you know, while we're talking about alternatives uh, that you'll probably see on there, I guess there would be two. Um, Copper oxide wire particles mm. is certainly a, an alternative to our our traditional dewormers um, that you know kind of used as a as a last ditch effort as as a lot of these are um, that have seen you know, quite a quite a bit of traction uh, and quite a bit of success in in working uh, with our our barber pole species and then um, 
the other would be bioworma. Uh, and then there's some data on there. Just um, it's it's very expensive and efficacy farm to farm is kind of up in the air. Uh, and there's been some new stuff being published about uh, just kind of where they're at with that. But certainly, again, you know, when we're looking at the spectrum of of alternatives and what scientists and producers have had to do to kind of work work around the you know the barber pole of species it's it's been kind of interesting to see the the full uh bodied approach to to controlling a parasite in in our small ruminants yeah i, I talked with a rep out of australia about that bioworma or yeah and uh basically what they said was they had intended that to be fed to be mixed in with your feed so that animals are consuming that on a regular basis and i said well what do you do in a pasture situation where you're not feeding any feed and he seemed to think that you might gain some control if you were to mix that in with your mineral mix but he also quickly admitted that um that few grams a day that that animal is supposed to be intake or, or yeah, supposed to be eating every day taken in um, that you weren't going to get that level of control because the sheep weren't going to be consuming that on a regular basis. <clears throat> I know in our, with our minerals, once we hit grass, the mineral consumption goes way down. Um, right. So it was, it's a cool concept of how it works. It, that's um there's a fungus, I guess, it's, and it's supposed to be a natural fungus that occurs in most everyone's environment, but that fungus is now concentrated in that manure, and when that, uh, when that L1 hatches out, or it hatches out into that L1, this fungus actually makes these little loops, and when that worm goes through that little loop, that little loop tightens up, and that worm can't get away, and that fungus just feeds on that worm. Yeah, I mean it's just like a noose, yeah, I mean, or a or a snare. I yeah. mean it's it's absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, I wish again the price point was was better than it than it is. Yeah, um, and I you know the the efficacy question and and just the delivery method, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. can be difficult. Um, when you start to add up what it would take to feed to see the the uh, fecal egg count reductions that they kind of published early on to see kind of what it would take to feed, you know, say a flock of a hundred sheep. Um, all of a sudden it's, it becomes a, a little cost prohibitive um, for a lot of operations, but yeah, like you said, it's fascinating. Yeah. So in talking to that rep, um, he seemed to think that that the efficacy of that was around 60 or 65%. Um and I, I suppose that's better than nothing. But like you said, it, it gets pretty costly to have to do that. The uh, So it, it, when you read on Wormex, they seem to be pushing pretty hard about using three different classes of wormers at the same time when you have to worm. And um, I listened to uh, Susan Shanian, and she had said that... Um, the idea behind that was if your first wormer was killing, oh, like 80% of what was there, then your second wormer would kill close to 80% of what was left. 
And if your third wormer killed 80% of what was left from that, you were down to very few worms that would survive. Yeah, you're up over 95%. Yeah. Point. Yeah. Um, and certainly when you're talking about multi, um, you know, like a multi-wormer approach that's given at one time, kind of separate all the, the full dosage amounts of each of those three different classes. Um, and that's, again, kind of our last-ditch effort um, of just we know we have anthelmintic resistance, but we have animals that need treatment. And so we need to treat those to, to salvage that animal um, and, and eliminate that parasite population inside of her so that she improves from a health standpoint. Uh -huh. uh, it's kind of a case by case basis on those that, that absolutely need treatment. It's certainly not a, um, I don't know who could afford personally, who could afford to go through and do the whole flock, um, you know, three dewormers at a time, but um, just from a time and, and the product cost standpoint of things. Um, but that certainly is, has been useful and, uh, in saving a, a lot of animals uh, in the process. Yeah, no, we just we just had a ewe uh, pop up with bottle jaw, and she was thin. I don't know why I didn't notice her before, um, but we pulled her out, brought her down to the barn, and we gave her three, you know, three classes of worm, and she responded very quickly to that. Um, so we're, we're just going to keep her in the park for a little bit, put a little weight on her. I'm not sure what the, what the deal is with her <clears throat> and why she came up. So parasitized <laughs> every time I go out to move sheep, man, I am standing there. I'm looking at everybody and thinking, you know, my, is this going to pop up across the whole flock? But so far it's just been that one animal and I've grabbed a few and checked the monster scores and so on. Everybody, everybody that I've caught so far looks good, but, uh, yeah, I think that's a situation where you want to do that on an individual animal, not across the whole flock. So on the FAMACHA front of things, uh, you know, we talked about selective deworming. Is that something you guys utilize to kind of measure where your U-flock's at? How often do you do it? Um, do you enjoy doing it or is it a an inconvenience most of the time? I would say it's an inconvenience most of the time. I just... A good number of my ewes will walk up to me, uh, especially when I get ready to move sheep. Uh, they all just crowd right in that corner where I'm getting ready to open that that fence up to let them through to the next paddock. And I just reach down and grab a few. And, you know, it's, it's, you get kind of quick at it. Uh, some ewes will stand right there while you do it, and others want to throw their head around. But um, And the hope is that I'm grabbing, you know, different ewes every time. Um, you know, there's always ones that'll come up and want a little scratch on the head kind of thing. And just cause they're easy pickings, I always grab one of those and check them too. So it kind of happens, I don't know, two, three, four times a week. It's just become more of a habit, but it certainly is not going through the entire flock. Um, occasionally if we think we might be having a problem is where we'll set the shoot up and all that and we'll run them through and, you know, kind of check everybody and kind of, you know, start to make a decision. Do we need to do something or do we not? But most of the time we don't. Um, the only time that we take a whole big group is once we've done 
once we purposely have infected lambs and we want to know, you know, where we're at with those, are they certain, are we starting to see the signs of parasitism? But it's, um, I think it is well worth going and being trained to do. I just watched a bunch of other people do it. Um, and we went to a training session it was where I met you. And, uh, we just kind of went through the line and said, well, let's just see if we're doing this right. <laughs> and it turned out we were, <laughs> and then, you know, became certified and got the, the little card and all that. But it's, um, I certainly don't carry the card with me all the time. I just tend even to, though you're supposed to, I know there's supposed to be four <laughs> or five, like five, uh, scores one through five i tend to just look and say oh she's really good yeah she's keep an eye on her oh she's bad <laughs> and that's kind of just what i used um this last year she was white i mean white and that's supposed to be knocking on death's door stuff and uh she rebounded quickly i'm really shocked by that but um but yeah, that's that's pretty much the way we do it. Uh, maybe once we have them in the barn, if we're you know going to breed or we're looking at lambing, then we'll pull the card out and maybe pay a little more attention to them. Um, especially if you've got something that's got uh, maybe triplets on it, and it's you know you're kind of in that what I call the gray area, and then maybe it's worth you know uh, worming her or just keeping an eye on her kind of a thing but yeah it's not uh it's not something we do flock wise you know on a regular basis we just kind of spot checking yeah and you'd kind of mentioned use with triplets you know when you had your your use in in small lambs when you were turning sheep out on grass pretty shortly after they went through your lambing barn um you know how much issue did you see in in the lambs you know what kind of parasite pressure did you see in those nursing lambs or um you know maybe none at all uh, but just curious how you kind of managed those young animals those immunosuppressed animals um out on that pasture environment well the lambs themselves you know when we first move them out we don't figure that they're they've been parasitized at all um it is just kind of something we just sort of keep an eye on. They're they're nibbling grass. They're not really hammering it very hard. Um, it really is kind of a case by case scenario. Very seldom do we ever have to go back in and worm those lambs until we've you know pushed them through that protocol where we're purposely infecting them. I don't know, maybe it's something I should be paying more attention to, but um, we just very rarely see it in those lambs. I don't know whether we've done just so much better job of, of uh, trying to breed in parasite resistance or whether, you know, the, the use that they're coming out of, um, you know, I, I've read that the, those parasite resistant use have more, what is it, uh, hemoglobins or something like that is that the word that are in the in the milk and so that makes those immunoglobins lambs, what is it immunoglobins immunoglobins yes and that makes them more uh 
it just makes them a little healthier. So we don't have much of an issue with that, which you kind of think you would because they're small. And so you think they'd be eating a little, <laughs> eating more in that parasite zone. Right. But it really isn't anything that we've had a major issue with. Now we lose a lamb every once in a while and you're kind of scratching your head and you're thinking, well, is that from Barbara Polworm? Doesn't look like it's got bottle jaw. And um, we haven't gone through and done the uh, uh, the necropsies on them. It's something, uh, I think at the EAPK symposium, they're offering a, a class on that. I'm definitely going to be in that. So we can have a better idea so we can open some of these up and see what is happening to them. Yeah, and kind of determine some some on-farm just causes of death. Yeah. 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 It should be a good should be a good event. But yeah, as far as worms and lambs, that has not been a major issue. But it hasn't been in use either. So I, I keep going back to the rotational grazing and thinking that's what's really been helping us out. Cool. Yeah, I was just curious, you know, when we were talking about that, um, certainly there's plenty of pathogens in in the environment, both outside on pasture and, and in a barn if we're, we're keeping them in confinement for that short period of time, um, you know, upsides and, and downsides to both. And if you if you ask two different groups, what what's the option to go with? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to get probably more than two different answers. So yeah, it's always nice to kind of hear some some background, what people have done and how it's worked out for you. But kind of second the thought process behind those lambs aren't eating a lot of a lot of forage out in that environment. Um, so the parasite species that they're going to pick up is is less likely to be, you know, Hamacus contortus in those early stages of life. Um, but yeah, we won't get into the periparturiant rise today. Um but certainly, as we've kind of talked, we'd like to like to do some some genetic evaluation and, and EBV selection on this topic specific to parasite resistance, as well as looking at the actual immune function when we're talking about parasite resistance and uh, just how that animal naturally is um, adapted to have the tools to withstand and and evade that parasite infection. Uh, it's pretty cool stuff, a little deep, but, um, you know, we've got the, the people to discuss it. So it should be, should be a good time. That sounds good. Well, Cam, we're running up on our time here. I know you're on vacation. I'm getting ready to go on vacation. So, uh, yeah, where are you headed? I'm heading out to Mount Vernon, Ohio, uh, to stay with some friends that are having a, uh, a border collie dog trial i guess is what it's called (laughs) i'm not really sure what it's called but it's where the you know they've got some sheep out in the field and the border collie has to run out and bring them and take them through gates and and all that stuff so i think it'll be a fun weekend be lots of new people there to meet and i've got a border collie it needs lots of work and uh, taking him out as well not to compete but just uh to be out there and I'm going to try to pick up some free lessons is what I'm hoping to do. <laughs> so. That's yeah, that's a smart idea. And certainly, you know, one of those things I, I have limited exposure to that working dog kind of side of things. Um, 
but I think I could spend a day sitting there and watching some good ones work because it is absolutely mesmerizing. Yeah, it looks like I'm going to spend two days doing that. So I'm kind of excited to do that. And then uh, while I'm there, I'm going to head over to your farm. Finally get to see what you're doing. And there's another uh, shepherd out there that we're going to go visit as well. So Yep. And, you can uh, come check out these Ford soybeans. I'm excited. So Yeah, can't wait to see those. So it's been good catching up with you, Cam. And uh, we'll see you in a few days. So we thank you for listening to another episode here of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. If uh, you got some questions um, or just some comments, you can reach out to me at bigtomperkins at gmail.com. And we thank you for listening. We hope you subscribe. And so we'll talk to you later there, Cam. All right. Sounds good, Tom. Yep. Bye.